Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1222. French Fascists and the JFK Assassination Part 1. This is being recorded on January 19th of the year 2022. Before getting into the program proper, three links. These are at the top of each written program description on the SpitfireList.com website and at the top of each written Food for Thought post on the left side of the front page of the uh, aforementioned SpitfireList.com website. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our expert contributing editor Terra Fractal, some by other intelligent listeners. The second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to uh, consume the program, sister station WFMU is podcasting the broadcasts and also uh, archiving those on MP3. And you can uh, click on that link to subscribe to the podcast. Last, but certainly not least, again, at the top of each written description for each For the Record program, and at the top of each Food for Thought post on the left side of the front page of the SpitfireList.com website, there is a link that will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my roughly 43 years of work on the air and written work as well, in addition to a mini-library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. To make a long story short, I do not think we are going to make it. I think we are at the twilight of our civilization, uh, and as pessimistic as that may sound. Uh, uh, we ain't going to make it, folks. Uh, don't look up, as that uh, current hit motion picture maintains. Uh, in fact, don't look down, don't look around you, don't look... Actually, you should be ever observant and all observant to the extent that you can. Uh, the less you are ignorant of, then the smaller the chance that you will succumb immediately to what is taking place. I get no money whatsoever ever from that flash drive, and I do think that every listener to this program has a responsibility, frankly, as a sentient being, as a member of our civilization, to get that flash drive and to make yourself a repository for the information uh, concerning why we have come to the, the very sorry state that we are in. Now, uh, the program, again, the title is French Fascists and the JFK Assassination, Part 1. This is, as the title indicates, about the role of French fascists in the events surrounding JFK's assassination. Beyond that, however, it is a study at the deep politics, not only concerning JFK's assassination, but in particular concerning fascism in general. Uh, in the introduction to the book's for download section 
on the SpitfireList.com website. That is the aforementioned mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. There is discussion of the phenomenon of fascism, and not only is it something that happened long ago and far away, uh, it is not a peripheral or a superficial consideration. The dominant corporate interests astride the world today are the ones that precipitated fascism, which itself was an outgrowth of the international cartel system, granted that is redundant, and was a manifestation of globalization as manifested by that aforementioned cartel system. By the period between the two world wars, the nation-state proper was eclipsed in importance and uh, effective functionality by cartels, by international monopolies. In 1917, the Webb-Pomerine Act, that's uh, Webb, W-E-B-B, and Pomerine, P-O-M-E-R-E-N-E, was a loophole to the Antitrust Act, and although trusts or monopolies were maybe legal in the U.S., it was left open for aspiring monopolists to conspire or, quote, uh, negotiate, unquote, or do business with, unquote, their associates in foreign countries to create transnational international monopolies or cartels, which basically regulated international commerce and also structured world power politics uh, in accordance with their views, both fascism per se and World War II were outgrowths of those phenomena. We are going to take a look in this program at French fascists whose activities date to the mid-1930s and whose activities were conducted uh, in that time period in conjunction with uh, the dominant economic and financial interests in France and also in neighboring Germany, as we will see. They conducted their activities in conjunction with the French aristocracy, which not only hated democracy, but in particular was deeply averse to the popular front of Bune, which uh, was basically a socialist government, a democratically elected socialist government in France. Beyond that, uh, strong elements of the officer corps, the French officer corps, uh, hated the popular front, they hated democracy, and those corporate aristocratic and military interests aligned and allied in a, an anti-democratic and uh, explicitly anti-labor, anti-socialist, and anti-communist, unquote, alliance that attempted in 1938 to overthrow French democracy, not unlike the coup attempt in the U.S. four four years earlier. But then, when the Germans invaded in 1940, 
that coalition combined to subvert the French military resistance to the Germans because the defeat was seen as essential for the establishment of of fascism in France. The defeat was blamed on the leadership of Verbum and the Social Front to discredit not only those interests but uh, the manifestations of and the dynamics of democracy itself. Uh, Many of those French corporate interests were already uh, very closely aligned with counterparts in Germany, and uh, ideologically elements of the French elite uh, were doctrinaire fascists and uh, welcomed the Germans uh, into France as uh, basically fellow political fellow travelers, economic allies, and uh, elements who would basically help to implement the type of military, political, and economic agenda that they favored, i.e. fascism as allied with the Third Reich. The government of France uh, under fascism was the Vichy government, the capital V-I-C-H-Y, initially headed up by Marshal Pétain, P-E-I-Q-T-A-I-N, who was a military hero from World War One. He was basically a little long in the tooth by WW2, but because of his signature status as a military hero of the Great War as World War I was known, he was seen as a useful figurehead for the French fascist collaborationist government. Uh, now, in this program, we are going, in this series, I really should say, it will take certainly at least two programs, possibly three. We are going to be taking a look at fascists in, uh, from France who were allied with the Cagoul organization initially. That's spelled uh, C-A, capital C-A-G-O-U-L-E. It's called La Cagoul. They were also called the Hooded Ones. They were doctrinaire fascists, doctrinaire anti-Semites, and they were organized in a cellular uh, organizational uh, format, and they wore hoods to disguise their identities at meetings. They combined with other French fascist organizations, such as the Croix de Feu, or uh, Cross of Fire, in that aforementioned 1938 attempt to overthrow French democracy and establish fascism. They were unsuccessful then, but Cagoule fascists were in the forefront of the enforcement apparatus of the fascist Vichy collaborationist government, and they helped to staff uh, La Milice, M-I-L-I-C-E, a French Gestapo-like organization. They collaborated with the German Gestapo proper. They joined the French SS division, the Charlemagne division, or Charlemagne, and uh, they networked with their German counterparts, including and especially Otto Skorzeny, the SS colonel, who uh, became a key element of the Galen spy organization, working not only with uh, the CIA in that uh, in that uh, 
capacity, but also with the German, the German uh, intelligence service, the BNB, when the Galen Org became the official intelligence service of the Federal Republic of Germany, and Scorzemi was also a prime mover in international fascism, an arms dealer extraordinaire, and one of the linchpins of what freelance Danish journalist Henrik Kruger termed the international fascista or the fascist international. One of the key components of that was the Scorzemi managed paladin mercenary group which shared an office in Franco, Spain with a, an office of the Central Intelligence Agency. It was managed, again, it was a Scorzini project, but it was managed by Gerhard Hartmut von Schubert, a former official with Goebbels Propaganda Ministry in the Third Reich. Scorzini touched many bases and uh, a recent book, a new book, about the JFK assassination, maintains that Scorzemi was a primary logistical organizer of the JFK assassination from his base in Spain. A French fascist uh, and man of a thousand faces, that was a term that was given to the late actor Lon Chaney. And it certainly applied to Pierre Lafitte, L-A-F-I-T-T-E, who maintains he was actually a blood descendant of pirate Jean Lafitte. And he was a man who worked, again, with the French fascist milieu. He worked with the French milice and the, was a member of the SS uh, Chardemagne Division, the French Waffen-SS Division. He worked with Otto Scorzini, among others, after World War II, and uh, worked with CIA. He worked with all kinds of people. He was, again, a fascist. He was also a brilliant spook, and uh, was described by associates as a true chameleon. He would not only change his uh, superficial appearance according to assignment, but some who knew him, such as George Hunter White, the CIA and Bureau, Federal Bureau of Narcotics operative, uh, as someone who could actually change color right before your eyes. Lafitte touched many bases. He was a man of mystery, and it is the contention of the book that we are going to be dealing with in large measure that Lafitte was actually something of a manager in the U.S. of the disparate elements of the JFK assassination. Uh, I would not say it's so facto that that analysis is 100% correct. I certainly don't think it is incorrect. Lafitte was himself a very enigmatic man, a self-styled man of mystery. He deliberately kept much of himself hidden, and uh, it may very well be that the diary, which is attenuated in its, uh, the journal, which is attenuated in its notations, is exactly that. It is something of a journal uh, for the assassination of JFK. It is possible that it isn't. However, I think the book, that book being the called Coup in Dallas, The Decisive Investigation into Who Killed JFK by the late Hank 
Alborelli Jr. with a number of uh, co-authors, has a forward by Dick Russell, the author of The Man Who Knew Too Much, whom I interviewed in For the Record 54. And even if uh, Lafitte was not the actual manager of the assassination in the, in the U.S., and I think that is a very real possibility, I think that the structure of the JFK assassination, as lavishly documented in the book, would stand on its own, rather like a building, a high-rise building under construction. And even if we view the Lafitte Journal as a scaffold, I think that the building under construction will stand on its own even if the scaffold is removed. And that's about as good a, a metaphor as I think we can use. Certainly, uh, it appears that Lafitte was deeply involved in the JFK assassination. And one of the things that I think is so important about this book is that it covers fascism in its complete sweep, both institutionally and historically. It begins with the story of the Cagoule in France in the 1930s. It then takes key operatives of the Cagoule, people like Jean Filiol, F-I-L-L-I-L-L, people like Jacques Correz, C-O-R-R-E-Z-E, uh, other people uh, like Mr. Schuller, the founder of the cosmetics giant L'Oreal, which has a fascist, uh, strong fascist connection, as we will see. And it chronicles and documents the careers, interactions, and uh, adventures, so to speak, of these elements, and not just by themselves, but in conjunction with uh, Western intelligence agencies, the CIA in particular, uh, international fascism, in particular elements in Spain under Francisco Franco, the fascist big paper of Spain, and Scorzani basically held forth in Spain, among other uh, countries. It chronicles the very significant uh presence uh, of these fascists and their networks within the transnational corporate structure. One of the companies that we will be looking at again is the French cosmetic giant L'Oreal, one of the leading names in the cosmetic industry today. And that company is not in any way atypical in its fascist connections, both uh, in the 1930s and 1940s and up through today. When the Justice Department's Office of Special Investigations uh, was uh, investigating Jacques Correz, who was in charge of the American operations for the Royale, uh, they not only came across Mr. Correz and the fascist heritage of L'Oreal, but they also had people giving them information about uh, the presence 
in Dallas, Texas, on November 22nd, 1963, of the aforementioned Cagoule and SS assassin Jean Robert Fillot, and also another French fascist and SS collaborator. Both of them worked, by the way, with the aforementioned Otto Scorzemi, a fellow named Gérald L-I-T-T. The OSI... Investigators declined to be identified for the Alberelli book, and I would note that uh, in late 2021, Neil Schur, who headed up the OSI at that point in time, dropped dead at the age of 74 of what his wife described as apparent cardiac arrest, which seems odd if you have a heart attack. That should be relatively easy to document, whether or not his death was natural or part of a cleanup operation of those connections uh, is a matter of conjecture. But in the series that we are undertaking, we are certainly looking at the JFK assassination, uh, a very important event. Young listeners, uh, I don't know how many of them there are to this program, but if you want to know basically why this country's ice cream has turned to horse manure, uh, study the JFK assassination, find out, follow the participants, both the individuals and the institutions who were involved with that event in 112263 in Dallas, follow them as they have evolved through the history since, and follow those elements as they coalesced and as they moved up to that fateful day in Dallas, and move from those to the very, very, very deeply connected events surrounding World War II. We are going to be doing that, uh, hopefully, uh, clearly for listeners' uh, purposes in this series. Uh, but again, although this is about the JFK assassination, it is really about the sweep and scope and... Uh, institutional connections and operations of international fascism. Okay, well, there's a nice brief introduction, isn't it? Well, it took, what, 20 minutes or something like that. Uh, we're going to begin by taking a look at, again, an excerpt from this book, Who in Dallas? The Decisive Investigation into Who Killed JFK by H.P. Alberelli Jr. We have spoken about some of the French fascist connections to the events surrounding JFK's assassination in other programs. In For the Record Program 1162, we took a look at the attempts on the life of French President Charles de Gaulle by elements of the OAS, the Organisation de l'Armée Secrète, that is a French fascist military coterie, many of whom had collaborated with the Third Reich and the Vichy government, and they were attempting to assassinate de Gaulle and overthrow French democracy because they felt uh, that de Gaulle had betrayed them by granting independence to the French colony and of Algeria, in which many of them had uh, fought a very bloody counterinsurgency war. And they also felt that the Gaulle was too cozy with powerful French labor unions and labor forces, and that if they didn't stage a military coup, then uh, communism would come to France. It was not 
unlike the ideology that drove the Cagoule and the Croix de Feu in the abortive 1938 coup that I alluded to, and that also uh, drove those same elements to collaborate with Vichy and with the Third Reich during the occupation of France by the Third Reich during World War II. We have also spoken about how the CIA elements thereof at any rate, uh, actively collaborated with the OAS and JFK, was powerless to do anything about it. We spoke about that in full record 1162. And in our landmark discussions with Jim Eugenio about his very important book, Destiny Betrayed, I did 25 one-hour interviews with Jim about the book. We not only spoke about the fact that a skilled OAS assassin named Jean Swetre, S-O-U-E-T-R-E, was in Dallas and was expelled from the U.S. on November 22, 1963. We have also spoken about the fact that Maurice Brooks Gatlin, who was one of Guy Bannister's, quote, investigators, unquote, Guy Bannister, a former FBI and ONI agent, Office of Naval Intelligence agent, who uh, was operating a, quote, detective agency in New Orleans, which basically was serving as an intelligence front for some of the paramilitary operations against Fidel Castro, and also for uh, some aspects of the JFK assassination as well. One of his, quote, investigators was Maurice Brooks Gatlin, and he testified, or he gave information to the effect that he had channeled a large sum of money from the CIA to French officers of the OAS to overthrow Charles de Gaulle. Uh, Maurice Brooks Gatlin's health took a turn for the worse in 1965 when he either jumped or was pushed from a hotel window in Panama. So that was the end of him. We are going to revisit briefly uh, an, an excerpt from uh, Destiny Betrayed by Jim Eugenio about Permindex, uh, which was a corporate entity with which Clay Shaw, the primary defendant in Jim Garrison's investigation, was affiliated. And they were involved with some of the OAS attempts on the life of Charles de Gaulle. In Destiny Betrayed, we spoke about the remarkable circumstances surrounding Lee Harvey Oswald's, quote, defection, unquote, to the Soviet Union. Uh, basically, that helped to give him a uh, left cover or the cover of being a, quote, communist, unquote. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a U.S. intelligence officer. He didn't kill anybody, but he was infiltrated not only into the former Soviet Union, but he was infiltrated into various left-wing organizations in the U.S. He was the sole uh, New Orleans member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, a pro-Castro organization. And then he was framed for the JFK assassination and killed before he could defend himself. One of the details which uh, is exemplary of the many, many fascist and Nazi connections to the JFK assassination concerns the admissions officer for Albert Schweitzer College, an obscure 
small Swiss-based uh, education of higher learning, to which Oswald had applied and uh, to which he was en route when he uh, basically changed course and defected, unquote, to the former Soviet Union. The identity of his admissions officer and apparent contact with Albert Schweitzer College is worth noting. From Coup and Malice, again, the decisive investigation into who killed JFK by H.P. Alberelli Jr., we read, Of note, three months earlier, Oswald had applied for admittance to the Albert Schweitzer College located in Switzerland via correspondence with Robert Schacht, S-C-H-A-C-H-T, the college's New York-based admissions officer. By coincidence, Robert Schacht was a blood relative of Yalmar Schacht. Yalmar Horace Greeley Schacht was the finance minister for Adolf Hitler, very close, by the way, to John Foster Dulles, and uh, a person who wielded a tremendous role in the aforementioned cartel system, the transnational corporate cartel landscape or corporate landscape uh, before and actually during and after World War II. And I don't think that it is a coincidence at all that the New York admissions officer for the obscure Albert Schweitzer College uh, to which Lee Harvey Oswald was en route when he switched course and, quote, defected, unquote, to the former Soviet Union, was a blood relative of Hitler's finance minister, who also was very close to Otto and Ilsa Skorzeny. Ilsa Skorzeny was Otto's wife and a brilliant cooperator with Otto Skorzeny. Uh, it is said in some circles that, uh, she, that, 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 uh, Skorzeny was his, uh, Omar Schacht's son-in-law. That does not appear to be uh, the case, but they were certainly very close to Yarmar Schacht. Now, uh, to bring the Schacht family, the S-C-H-E-C-H-T, not Schacht, Schacht, as uh, Inspector Renault was in uh, uh, the movie Casablanca. By the way, the uh, the French fascist forces in Casablanca as portrayed in the famous movie Casablanca starring Henry Bogart and uh oh Ingrid Bergman, uh among others. Uh that that was the Vichy government. In Destiny Betrayed, Jim Biagino writes about uh Clay Shaw's connections to Permindex or Cinto Mondiale Commerciale as its Italian corporate uh, facade was known, and their links to not only the powerful Wall Street connections that uh networked with and helped to finance the Third Reich, including uh working with Gelmar Horace Greeley Schock, Hitler's finance minister and a relative of Robert Schock but also another myriad uh, of fascists who were themselves exemplary of the Wall Street slash corporate slash cartel connections to which I alluded to in the introduction to the program. From Destiny the Trade, we read, The next step in the CIA ladder after his, Clay Shaw's, high-level overseas informant service was his work with the strange company called Permindex. When the announcement for Permindex was first made in Switzerland in late 1956, 
Its principal backing was to come from a local banker named Hans Seligman, S-E-L-I-V-M-A-N. But as more investigation by the local papers was done, it became clear that the real backer was J. Henry Schroeder Corporation. This information was quite revealing. Schroeder's had been closely associated with Alan Bellis and the CIA for years. Alan Bellis's connections to the Schroeder banking family went back to the 30s when his law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell, first began representing them through him. Later, Bellis was the bank's general counsel. In fact, when Bellis became CIA director, Schroeder's was a repository for a $50 million contingency fund that Bellis personally controlled. Schroeder's was a welcome conduit because the bank benefited from previous CIA overthrows in Guatemala and Iran. Another reason that there began to be a furor over Permanbex in Switzerland was the fact that the bank's founder, Baron Kurt von Schroeder, was associated with the Third Reich, specifically Heinrich Himmler. The project now became stalled in Switzerland. It now moved to Rome. In a September 1969 interview Shaw did for Penthouse Magazine, he told James Phelan that he only grew interested in the project when it moved to Italy, which was in October of 1958. Yet a State Department cable dated April 9th of that year says that Shaw showed great interest in Permindex from the outset. One can see why. The board of directors was made up of bankers who had been tied up with fascist governments, people who worked the Jewish refugee racket during World War II, a former member of Mussolini's cabinet, and a son-in-law of Yarmar Schock, the economic wizard behind the Third Reich, who was a friend of Clay Shaw's. These people would all appeal to the conservative Shaw. There were at least four international newspapers that exposed the bizarre activities of Permindex when it was in Rome. One problem was the mysterious source of funding. No one knew where it was coming from. Another was that its activities reportedly included assassination attempts on French Premier Charles de Gaulle, which would make sense since the founding member of Permindex, Frank Maggi, M-A-G-Y, was a close friend of Jacques Soustel, S-O-U-S-T-E-L-L-E. Soustel was a leader of the OAS, a group of former French officers who broke with de Gaulle over his Algerian policy. They later made several attempts on de Gaulle's life, which the CIA was privy to. Again, this mysterious source of funding plus the right-wing neo-fascist directors created another wave of controversy. One newspaper wrote that the organization may have been a, quote, a creature of the CIA, set up as a code for the transfer of CIA funds in Italy for legal, political espionage activities, unquote. The Schroeder connection would certainly suggest that. Yes, indeed. Uh, before pivoting directly to the chronicle of the French fascists who uh, were part of the JFK assassination 
assassination conspiracy, people like Pierre Lafitte, uh, Jean Robert Filiot, and a number of others. And by the way, both Lafitte and Filiot used numerous aliases. We're going to uh, briefly excerpt another previous book by uh, the late Hank Alberelli Jr. That is A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments, uh, published in softcover by Prime Day and copyright 2010 by Hank Alberelli Jr. And Pierre Lafitte had worked at both Riley Coffee Company, one of the uh, companies for which Lee Harvey Oswald worked. Uh, William Lally was a, an enthusiastic backer of the anti-Castro-Cuban effort, and uh, that raises a very interesting question with a, quote, pro-Castro, unquote, quote, communist, unquote, like uh, Oswald, would be doing working for somebody like that. Um and in addition to working for the Raleigh Coffee Company, Lafitte also cooked for a work at a restaurant that was in the World Trademark in New Orleans, one of whose uh, prime mover was the aforementioned Clay Shaw. Alberelli writes, It is worth noting that Lafitte turned up in yet another tangle of major historic proportions during the 1960s. Around the time of the JFK assassination, Lafitte worked for the Riley Coffee Company and then as a chef for the World Trade Mart, both in New Orleans. William B. Riley, an avid anti-communist, owned the Riley Coffee Company and was closely connected to McCarthyite and rabid anti-communist Edward Scannell Butler, who were both close to CIA Assistant Director Charles Cabell, CIA SRS Chief Paul Gamer and agency artichoke official Morris Allen. Readers may recall that the late JFK assassin Lee Harvey Oswald also worked as a maintenance man for the Riley Coffee Company in the summer of 1963. And in addition, in another part of A Terrible Mistake, uh, by the way, Frank Olson was a CIA uh, scientist who allegedly committed suicide after being dosed with LSD in some of the MKUltra-LSD experiments. Uh, Alberelli makes an excellent case that, in fact, he was murdered. Of another connection between Lafitte and the JFK assassination, according to Alberelli, Lafitte was involved with uh, a major journalist named James Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N, who also figured in our discussion in... Uh, of uh, Destiny Betrayed with Jim B. Jamio in a big way. Lafitte and Alan Hughes collaborated on another occasion in a very bizarre and revealing episode having to do with accused JFK assassination co-conspirator Clay Shaw. Hughes, Lafitte, and investigative writer James Phelan, who some maintain was in league with both Mayhew and the CIA, literally called in the New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison's office to purloin documents having to do with Clay Shaw. Lafitte would later tell George Hunter White that the Garrison office break-in was maybe one of the only jobs I ever did that made me worry any at all, unquote. So again, uh, according to an earlier book by Hank Alberelli, Lafitte turned up in three different capacities uh, with... Uh, it, 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 tangential to uh, the 
JFK assassination, or as part of the events that were part of the uh, mosaic of the JFK assassination. He was an employee of the Rivey Coffee Company, also uh, cooked at a restaurant in the World Trade Center, and was also involved in a black bag job uh, of Jim Garrison's office uh, in uh, connection with, among others, James Phelan, according to the Alberelli book. Now, what we're going to do next is to begin to trace the history of people like Jean-Paul Robert Fillot, uh, Pierre Lafitte, uh, and we are going to take a look at their participation in the French fascist landscape of the mid-1930s, in particular La Cagoule, or the Hooded Ones, and we are then going to follow their activities through the Vichy government with which they collaborated, their participation in the French SS division, their collaboration during World War II with Otto Scorzani, their collaboration after World War II with Otto Scorzani when Scorzani uh, decamped to Franco's Spain and became a, uh, uh, a man who uh, was all over the place in the fact the post or fascist international. Turning now to coup in Dallas, the decisive investigation into who killed JFK by H.P. Alberelli Jr. Speaking of La Cagoule, the fascist organization that, along with Claude Bafour and other fascist groups, tried to overthrow the government of Léon Blum in 1938, one of La Cagoule's most notorious assassins, who often dealt, dealt with OSS collaborator and double agent Henri Bastier, the apostrophe capital A-S-T-I-E-R, was Jean-Paul Robert Fillol, F-I-L-L-I-O-L, spelled consistently with a single L by the feet in his journal. One more time. One of Lacagoul's most notorious assassins, who often dealt with OSS collaborator and double agent Henri Bastier, was Jean-Paul Robert Fillot, spelled consistently with a single L by Lafitte. With the Vichy government formed in France, Fillot became Lacagoul's chief and most trusted assassin, an infamous killer known throughout Europe. Within months of La Cagoule's formation, Filiot became head of the group's section terroriste, and many of his fledgling assassins were in their late teens or early twenties. Perhaps equally significant is Filiot's history with Nazi SS Sturbanfuhrer Otto Scorzani. We now know that Scorzani played the crucial role of logistical mastermind of the hit in the Plaza. And then throughout the 1930s, Pierre Lafitte often went by the aliases Jean-Pierre Monard, Jean Monard, as well as Pierre-Jean Martin, during the time that he was closely aligned with the French Gestapo-like group called the Milice, capital M-I-L-I-C-E. Lafitte's surviving personal effects act to support the claim and contain a few French SS badges as well as two Melisse identity cards under the name of Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. 
and about the association during World War II between Fidel and Lafitte, and also uh, then shortly afterward, Alfred Scorzini. Pierre Lafitte would also cross paths with Fidel, who, like Lafitte, would use at least 20 aliases, when in 1944, Fidel was associated with the SS Waffen Charlemagne Division, a French unit aiding the Nazis in their occupation of France. It is reported by surviving members of Lafitte's family that he was with the SS Begabefeuer Kruckenberg, Kruckenberg, K-R-U-K-E-N-E-N-B-E-R-G, in April of 1945, just prior to his being moved to Berlin to defend Hitler in his final bunker days, but independent confirmation of this remains elusive. There is no evidence that Lafitte was ever captured, let alone brought to trial. However, at the end of World War II, Fidel was tried in absentia and sentenced to death. His sentence was never carried out because he escaped to Spain, and fascist dictator General Francisco Franco refused to extradite the killer. Once in Spain, Fidel soon established contact with Nazi Afos Grosemi, who had been, quote, resettled, unquote, for the benefit of U.S. intelligence interests in Madrid, the nation's capital. One more time. Once in Spain, Fidel soon established contact with Nazi Afos Grosemi, who had been, quote, resettled, unquote, for the benefit of U.S. intelligence interests in the nation's capital, Madrid. There, Filio quickly landed a secure and well-paid executive job with the International Division of L'Oreal, capital L, apostrophe, capital O-R-E-A-L, a cosmetic and beauty products company. Today, a very well-known company, L'Oreal was founded and operated by Eugène Schuller, S-C-H-U-E-L-L-E-R, a passionate anti-Semite and ultra-right-winger. Schuller, during the 1930s and the war years, financially supported La Cagoule and the Vocal's 1940 political group Mouvement Social Revolutionnaire, or MSR. MSR, like La Cagoule, was ultra-nationalistic, anti-communist, and anti-Semitic, and featured Fillot as chief of intelligence and Schuller as a group director and central source of funds. Beginning in October of 1944, after holding a series of conferences with German and French advisors, Joseph Bernat, D-A-R-N-A-N-D, a 46-year-old prominent Lacagoule member, virulent anti-Bolshevist, Malice founder, and Nazi SS officer, founded a special service, unquote, called L'Organisation Technique, or OT. It was made up of about 200 volunteers. Filiot was placed in charge of OT's training division. His first major project was to take on the training of 150 paramilitary parachutists. We begin to grasp the impact of Filiot's history with not sure how best to go about the task of training the OT's parachutists, Filio sent a telegram requesting assistance from Nazi Sturmbannführer Skorzemi, 
who he had first encountered in Paris. And then more about L'Oreal. At one point, uh, Cagoule assassin, French SS officer and uh, Gestapo officer uh, Filiot became vice president of international marketing for L'Oreal. Again, a man with many connections, and this by way of illustrating how fascism was not a peripheral organization and something unconnected with or uninvolved with powerful interests that are very much with us today. Returning the coup in Dallas. Another close associate of the murderous video was Jacques Correz, C-O-R-R-E-Z-E, a man who over the past half century has consistently been labeled a bloodthirsty racist and shapeshifter who causally oversaw Fugil's homicidal activities. Carrez had been a high-ranking member of La Cagoule and the personal assistant of Eugène de Nolcois, head and the parent founder of La Cagoule, and served as a critical link in the funding of La Cagoule by Eugène Schuer, founder of the L'Oreal Cosmetic Company. Following the close of World War II, Correz was convicted of several war crimes and sentenced to ten years in a French prison. Jacques Correz was freed in 1949 after only five years in prison. Shortly thereafter, he was hired by then L'Oreal Company President François Dallet, D-A-L-L-E. One of Correz's first assignments for the company was to help better organize Procasa, capital P-R-O-C-A-S-A, L'Oreal's Spanish marketing firm. While in Spain, naturally, Correz became friends with Alfos Corzemi after being introduced to his fellow SS officer by former La Cagoule assassin Jean Fillot, by now the vice president of international marketing for L'Oreal, again, a former French SS officer and uh, Cagoule assassin, uh, Jean-Robert Filiot. One more time about some of his connections. While in Spain, naturally, Correz became friends with Alfos Corzemi after being introduced to his fellow SS officer by former La Cagoule assassin Jean Filiot, by now the vice president of international marketing for L'Oreal. After several years of Picasso, Correz was dispatched to the United States, where he was charged with directing Cosmere, C-O-S-M-A-I-R, a division of L'Oreal. He successfully built the division to a very prosperous market position, but in 1991, the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations announced that it was opening an investigation, quote, to determine whether the chairman, Carrez, of the $1 billion American affiliate of L'Oreal, the French cosmetic company, should be barred from the United States for his pro-Nazi activities during World War II. Again, Jacques Carrez, head of the billion-dollar affiliate, American affiliate of L'Oreal. Continuing. According to two former employees of the department's Office of Special Investigations, both of whom declined to be identified in this book, the examination of Correz's past quickly unearthed unexpected details about his links to Jean Filiot, 
Gerard Leap and Apos Grosemi, inclusive of detailed suspicions about Filio's and Leap's presence in Dallas, Texas, at the time of the JFK assassination. A formal request by author Alberelli to the U.S. Department of Justice for documentation concerning these suspicions remained unanswered. Correa's died suddenly in June of 1991, and the Justice Department suspended its investigation into his activities. And uh, next we're going to talk about uh, some of Atos Grosemi's commando training camps in Spain, one of which was attended by Jean Sueto, who was a very skilled and important French commando officer, and again, he was an OAS assassin. He was expelled from Dallas, Texas, and the United States on November 22, 1963. The Herbert here is former Army Ranger Officer Ranger Green Beret, Anthony Herbert, whom we spoke about in For the Record 1163, in our discussion of the remarkable and very important book, Chaos. Uh, by Tom O'Neill. By the way, Otto Scorzini figures into the intelligence community mix surrounding the Manson family. Returning again to Coup in Dallas. Scorzini's aide explained to Herbert that his superior was absent because he had, quote, other things going on, unquote. The arrangements that were made for Army Ranger Officer Anthony Herbert to meet with Scorzini confirmed that Captain Slefka's commandos were fully aware of the nature of Scorzini's training schools in Spain, which they also attended. And we're also going to, this will probably be the last item in uh, this program, we're going to talk about how Reinhard Galen, the German master spy who was chief of intelligence for Hitler's Eastern Front Intelligence Organization. He then jumped uh, first to the CIA and then NATO and finally the Federal Republic of Germany with his entire organization maintaining all of its Nazi character. And uh, Galen, not surprisingly, was very supportive of the French OAS and gave them assistance and networked with them. And he was afraid of uh, de Gaulle as well and shared the anxiety of his OAS colleagues that, uh, barring a military coup which they sought to implement, uh, France would go communist. It should also be noted here that uh, the OAS officers promised that following their takeover of France and the establishment of a dictatorship, they would award German corporate interests some important economic concessions. And also note that even after uh, distancing himself from the OAS, it turned out that Galen had a high-level informant deeply embedded in the French government, uh, a fellow named Chau, uh, or rather Maurice Picard, who uh, turned out was not only an extreme right-winger, but a Nazi collaborator during the Vichy occupation. From Galen, Spy of the Century by E.H. Cookridge, published in hardcover by Random House in 1971. The French had found succor in Germany for several years in their fight against Algerian nationalists. But Galen turned against General de Gaulle after he executed a vote fast and offered independence to the Algerians. 
he regarded de Gaulle's decision as opening the door to communism in North Africa. Thus, Galen sided with the French generals who staged the revolt against the French president. Galen was in full accord with the politicians such as Georges Bidot and Jacques Soustel, who had turned against de Gaulle and supported the OAS organization aimed at preventing the independence of Algeria. When Bidot and Soustel and other OAS sought refuge from arrest from the French police, Galen advised Chancellor Kiesinger, that's Kurt Kiesinger, that there was no reason for refusing their request. Galen had close contacts with the leaders of the anti-Gaullist rebellion. On June 15, 1961, General Raoul Savant, S-A-L-A-M, had a secret meeting with Galen at a villa in Schwabing used by BNB for clandestine purposes. Earlier, he had already met General Maurice Chalet, the chief author of the General's Putsch in Algiers. Two other OAS leaders, Joseph Ortiz and Pierre de Gaillard, accused in Paris of having been involved in several attempts at the assassination of General de Gaulle, also found refuge in Germany with Galen's help, according to subsequent disclosures in French newspapers. In supporting OAS activities and protecting its fugitive leaders, Galen had acted in direct opposition to Adenauer's avowed policy, which supported de Gaulle. An explanation for Galen's attitude was advanced in the French press. General Savant and his fellow conspirators had assured Galen that after ousting de Gaulle, a military dictatorship in France under their leadership would offer West Germany important political and economic concessions. The French generals and the big business and finance tycoons who backed them regarded de Gaulle's attitude to the trade unions and left-wing movements as too conciliatory. France was plagued by recurrent strikes and riots. If de Gaulle failed, there was, in their opinion, a real danger of a communist revolution. This must have been Galen's main reason for supporting the OAS. Eventually, de Gaulle made peace with the generals. Galen, however, continued to make sure that he received secret information from Paris. When the question of his continuation in office was still being discussed by Chancellor Kiesinger and his Social Democratic Coalition partners during the winter of 1967-68, another affair in which Galen was deeply involved burst into the newspaper headlines. A high official at the French Ministry of the Interior was arrested, accused of being an agent of a foreign power. He was 61-year-old Maurice Picard, a former chief of the ministry's secret security department and later its civil defense director. At first, it was believed that he had supplied information to Soviet agents, although he was known for his extreme right-wing views. Soon afterwards, Paris newspapers revealed that the, quote, foreign power, unquote, in question was the German Federal Republic and that Picard had been working for Galen for at least eight years. Indeed, he may already have been connected with Pulak when the, the disclosures of Galen's spying on Germany's allies were made in 1958. What was even more disturbing was that Picard had been a Platonist, unquote, and had collaborated with the Nazis during World War II. In 1945, Hicks succeeded in exonerating himself and eventually reached high rank 
in the government service. So this milieu that we are talking about, not surprisingly, was also heavily networked with Reinhard Galen and uh, the powerful industrial connections and finance connections that we will talk about more in our next program were front and center. However, we are all out of time. This concludes Football Record Program number 1222, French Fascists and the Assassination of JFK, Part 1. This is being recorded on January 19th of the year 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.